Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking writer-director Gilo Pontecorvo. Anyone seriously interested in film at least knows about the Battle of Algiers, mm. but I'll bet a lot of people don't know the name of its director. Well, we just said it, Gilo Pontecorvo. And I think it's because it's a film that is so totemic and it represents so much of like, oh, this is how you do kind of like documentary style war film that it kind of dominates everything. And the fact that honestly, he just did not make that many movies is also a mark against him. Well, I feel like the Battle of Algiers has gone down almost like a, a historic document more than an tourist work mm -hmm. you know it just came into being all by itself the fact that it you know is famous for looking you know being consciously influenced by newsreels of the time the fact that it seemed to capture the reality of the algerian war with documentary like accuracy it's easy to forget that there was a director behind that and he made one other super production after that 1969's burn starring no less than marlon brando and in the years after that, very, very little. But those two movies are so strong that they should be enough to secure his immortality. But even Burn is one of those movies that a lot of people would say, ah, but the Italian version is stronger, but then you don't get Marlon Brando's voice. So even then, like to watch the movie until maybe a few years ago when people went in and did a hybrid edit of it would be a compromise of some kind. So what got you interested in choosing this topic? Because I love the Battle of Algiers, of course, but I hadn't really thought to examine the director. I recently got the imprint Blu-ray of Burn, mm -hmm. and I love big big giant political epics especially if there's like that hint of difficulty behind them and there's nothing more difficult than getting marlon brando as your star man so watching burn this week i was amazed i'd never heard of it before because i really think this movie should be considered like it's weird that people don't talk about it right well i i also feel like you know the marlon brando fans when people talk about his career they almost they they talk up until like up to and including on the waterfront. Mm. And then it's a wilderness period after that until The Godfather. And then there's this, which I think is one of his, you know, Brando himself considered it some of his best work. A little background on Gilo Pontecorvo, born in 1919 in Italy. In his young adulthood, he was a tennis champion, actually. Yeah, that he had no interest really in the arts. And he just kind of like went around as a tennis champion. And that's what allowed him to meet, you know, peoples and cultures that he otherwise wouldn't. That's right. So, you know, growing up in fascist Italy under Mussolini, it was traveling Europe that opened his eyes to the sort of diversity of thought that was present throughout the democratic countries at the time. So in Paris, for instance, he met and apparently befriended the likes of Picasso, Stravinsky, Jean-Paul Sartre. Isn't it weird, like all the filmmakers, like around this period, they were all friends with like Jean-Paul Sartre and Picasso. Well, they went to the, the Midnight in Paris cafe where, <laughs> yeah, they, where everybody hung out. <laughs> yeah. From there, you know, he became politically awakened. He became the head of an organization for communist youth during in the Second World War, first in Milan and then Italy. He later, after the war, became disillusioned with communism as the Soviet Union progressed. But he Specifically because the Soviet Union invaded Hungary, which was the breaking point for him. But he remained a self-described man of the left. And 
uh, both of these films, particularly Burn, are interested in the relationship between colonialism and capitalism. You can find a lot of quotes with him being like, oh, I'm not that political. I'm just, you know, someone that, you know, is a little bit to the left. But I feel like a lot of those comments were often made in the context of, please, I just want to get another movie made. And if people see me as like a communist socialist, they will not give me money to make those movies. After the war, he pursued a career as a photojournalist, but it was seeing a film by Roberto Rossellini, the Italian neorealist classic Paisan, that moved him to want to pursue a career in filmmaking. He was very interested in the neorealist style, compelled by what he saw as its ability to get so close to the truth. His first film, The Wild Blue Road, which came out in 1957, and I'm not sure why, for a long time, sources would claim that like it didn't really exist and that his first film was Capo, which he made second. This is kind of like one of those rural Italian dramas shot in color, which he wouldn't really tackle until burn again. And it's about a fisherman who fishes with bombs, which is actually illegal and very dangerous. And him having to deal with his town coming together and wanting to create a co-op when he wants to continue fishing with bombs because it gets him more money than just kind of like living hand to mouth as he does if he was using nets. I don't get the sense that The Wild Blue Road has much of a reputation. In no, particular. I did watch it. It's all right. Like, yeah. it is what it is. It it does not have, like, the power of something like a Battle of Algiers. Not even close, of course. But you can see kind of his obsessions are, like, you know, permeating there. And do, that do you, So do you feel a political dimension in it? Yes, I do. Yeah. Because it is about, like, an individual wanting to kind of break the system and pushing everybody else away while doing it, putting his family in danger, even though that at the end, does it have tragic consequences? <laughs> I don't know. Don't want to spoil it. Anything. Well, there were a few other early films around this time. There was Capo from mm -hmm. 1959, which was one of the earliest cinematic depictions of life in the Nazi concentration camps. And it's brutally shown as well. It's a film that has an almost like Lawrence of Arabia style scope when it comes to just watching these people in the, in the camp, how far it goes out and taking you step by step through all of the misery. And the criticism that people have to this movie is that it's done a little too operatically the way that it's portrayed. I think that Jacques Rivet has a famous review he wrote where he was like furious at like a shot of a hand after a woman gets electrocuted that it was kind of like a moral insult to the audience an exploitation if you will oh like it was sort of turning it into mm -hmm. like Hollywood exactly. style yeah that that's a, a source of debate around pretty much every Holocaust film isn't it mm -hmm. uh, and it's supposedly reading some articles is something that kind of like haunted the director for most of his career even though Rivet is saying that principally because you know he wants attention so well you can take a movie and <laughs> well, I mean, are, are you saying Cage Cinema wouldn't write controversial things? I just, I just, think, I have some François Truffaut letters here that basically say that. No, no, I mean, I mean, certainly they would, but I, I also think just as Pontecorvo is like one of the earliest people sort of looking for a language of mm -hmm. depicting the Holocaust on screen, so too are those Cahiers critics working through the morality of the aesthetics of, you know, it's like it's the same criticism that people have with Spielberg oh, with absolutely. the shower scene in Schindler's List, you yeah, know, that it creates suspense and then a sense of relief in something that should ha not have that. And, because... th and those are like thorny things because like, yeah, you know, I'm sure Spielberg wants to communicate something to the audience. He wants to make the audience feel something about this, but... My main know... issue with Capo is that halfway through it turns into a romance and you're like, right. that doesn't really work, even though that everything you've seen and you see after is kind of brutal and real in a way that cinema had kind of danced around the edges, but hadn't really tackled in any significant way. Well, what's notable about the Battle of Algiers 
there's one of the things notable about it compared to Capo is its rigorous lack of melodrama. It was greeted at the time. I mean, it's, it's odd that it was greeted at the time this way, but it was greeted at the time as this rigorously neutral, like show all sides. Yeah. I mean, I mean, tr- truly, you look at a lot of the critical reception at the time and I don't know what this says about the times that those reviews were written in. Maybe it's just the fact that there was so much, you know, propaganda. Well, originally, the script that was written, they believed it was too positive on the Algerian side and that they wanted more of a split between both of them. Well, I mean, one of the things about it is that you actually do get fully fleshed characters on both sides. You you spend a lot of time with the Algerian and Mm. the French side. And if people don't know, Algeria was colonized by France for a very long time, and then they wanted their independence. And France did not want that so not only did they you know send troops it also led to a draft of you know french youth being forced to go to algeria to fight the algerians and all of this is a very heavy trauma that is still felt in france to this day mm-hmm. i i, I was we, watching yeah. a four-hour documentary called uh, the war without a name where he just interviews only french soldiers and none of them that were anything like above a private and their experience and it's brutal like people have compared it to Shoah, and i would recommend it even though i don't think it exists anywhere with subtitles but i could be wrong but it, it is like one of the definitive algerian war documentaries well the bulk of battle of algiers takes place during the algerian war in 1954 to 1957 and this is not a war really with regimented troops on a battlefield it's on the streets yeah it's a war between an occupying colonial power and an underground resistance a resistance made up of cells most of whom only know a few people in their immediate vicinity because that's that's the point of the resistance it has to be broad so you can't break it up and one of the things that Pontecorvo was you know lauded about is that all of the actors in the film except for one who plays a French general they were all non-actors that he brought into the fold because he was a man that was obsessed with faces and the way that they would be portrayed in the way that he imagined it when he was kind of building the movie yeah i mean this is something that he sort of gets from some of the neorealist films Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm sure you could draw a parallel with brisson as well you know the idea that you don't want you don't want you want models yeah you 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 want people who are the characters rather than people who you know possess that kind of movie star quality and in the next movie when he actually does employ a movie star i feel like well it's in contrast to the other people exactly exactly like like that guy's star quality is this is this like pillar in the middle of it and when you're talking about battle of algiers as being kind of documentary ish one of the other elements is not just it looks like newsreel footage which some shots do that like they even put a warning at the beginning that's like there is not one second of newsreel in this movie it is all stuff that were shot by the filmmakers well it's in this very like stark black yeah, and white like style. N- not i mean i think the movie looks amazing but it's not pretty or i say handheld style which a lot of it is but there's also scenes of like the cameras on dolly tracks Mm -hmm. but i think that what people think of like documentary style is also that it is a sprawling narrative that you can jump from like sequence to sequence where something suspenseful is built up for example the women having to cross the perimeter and then you can move on to something else well yeah the scale of the film which seems to take place all over paris like is so vast and some of the things that we see are shown in such like brutal frank detail Mm -hmm. of like just a youth pulling out a gun and just shooting a french cop that's on the streets and then running away yeah multiple scenes of you know people being shot in the streets the scene at the racetrack towards the end where the they uh, blow it up yeah where where the bomb goes off you know looks it has the it has the vibe of newsreel footage and i want to get into that thing you said earlier which is like oh it shows both sides and it does but what it's really showing is like 
the French are doing their thing efficiently. And I think yes. that's what people react to. It's like, oh, they're treating it as a job. The film never gets that much into the French side of like, why should we be here? They're like, we should be here because we are here. And that's where it leaves it. I, I don't know how he can think, watch this movie and not think it's on the side of the Algerians. Yes. But I mean, you'd have to fool yourself that you feel emotional watching it and you're like, oh, it shows both sides. And when they say that, they mean that you see the Algerians kill innocent people. Well, okay. So there are two broad groups at play in this film. On the one hand, there's the French army and then there's the LN, the Front de Liberation Nationale or the National Liberation Front. Those are the Algerians. And there are... You know, there are a couple of characters who over time come into focus as the main characters. The most important is probably Ali. He's a young street criminal, basically, who becomes radicalized for the Algerian cause. There are a few other characters. You know, there's a lieutenant colonel in charge of the French paratroops who's, you know, not a wholly unsympathetic character. Well, he's doing his job. Yeah. yeah. Like, he never really questions what he's doing. He just wants to do it very efficiently. Mm -hmm. And most of his scenes are him kind of talking about, like, you know, I didn't think you would do this or I didn't think you would do that. Not in kind of a brutal way, even though you do see the brutality of the Algerian War, which was famous for the torture that the French did against the Algerians. And, you know, there are certain movies like Pierrot Le Fou, mm -hmm. the scene in that film where Pierrot is waterboarding yeah like audiences at the time would have regarded would have been conscious of that as a reference but one of the big challenges of this movie and also one of the sources of its brilliance is the fact that it is completely unvarnished about the fact that there is horrible violence on both sides because this is a world of violence mm -hmm. so there are numerous scenes in the film where you see members of the Algerian resistance planting bombs in public cafes, you know. And the film, it like lingers in these cafes. Yes. Like you see everybody doing their thing, all these French citizens or, you know, French people who came to Algeria and they're just sitting there talking. It's a normal day. It's not like, oh, you just see the explosion go off. You, you see all, I think this is the important thing about it and why it's so impactful that you don't just see the bodies. You see them before that as well. So they're not abstracted. That's right. Now, this is part of an escalation of violence that we see. We see Algerian, you know, members of the Algerian re resistance killing French soldiers and policemen on the street. Then we see the French military planting a bomb. That's right, in a building that blows up. Yeah, in an apartment complex to kill one of the quote-unquote terrorists. And this leads, I mean, the way that Pontecorvo shows this scene, it's unmistakable where his sympathies lie, because he's completely honest about the violence that's happened up to this point, but the way that he uses music in this scene, or in fact doesn't use da -da -da. music, <laughs> yeah. Which is credit to Inyo Morricone, even though that I read that Pontecorvo wrote most, most of the music, because it's very simple, Inyo Morricone got a credit because he was his friend and he helped him orchestrate it. I think Bruno Nicolai was also credited as well, the, right. the great Italian composer. But the way that music is used in this scene, the way that Pontecorvo lingers in the aftermath of this scene and, you know, the, the rush of bodies out into the streets. Well, I think Pontecorvo said in interviews that he uses the same sad music when you see the French bodies and the Algerians' b bodies. Right. And it, this is not either a, like, both sides kind of thing. No. I mean, if you want to interpret it that way... You can, I guess, but you are incorrect. It's an anti-colonial film that nevertheless has the courage and honesty to say, yes, the colonized killed innocent people mm -hmm. because they were in a world of violence. And you're just going to have to accept that. And the movie, even at the end, is like, and how did this get solved? Well, the people rose up. That it was literally the whole populace. Ten years later, mm -hmm. because for several years, the French 
the French army waged this brutal counterattack. I mean, the scene, for example, like on the last day of the strike, where, you know, the Algerians, they've been striking for days and the French have been blasting propaganda through the air. Like, like the FLN doesn't want you to work. The yeah, FLN, the FLN is, is the reason that, you know, things are miserable. They're making you close your shops. And then at the, the last day of the strike, they're like, fuck it. They're just like, they're, they're forcing the stores open. They're like, the army is like crashing the windows open, making people go back to work, basically. This is the kind of brutal retaliation that they're doing. But then 10 years later, you know, it is based on fact. I mean, mm-hmm. the op- the optimistic ending of the film is that you can't kill the revolutionary spirit. You yeah. can't kill the idea. That the people, as long as they group together and rise up, can push the people out. And they did. And, and as long as the oppression continues, you, yeah. can't, you can't have an action without an equal and opposite reaction, which I hope is true. Yeah, that's why I'm taking up my guns against Trudeau. We can't take our freedoms <laughs> away. Yeah. So after... It's uh, really good, by the way, Battle of Algiers. Battle of Algiers. Have, have you guys heard of it? It's, it's <laughs> yeah, really good. You know what? They probably haven't seen Burn! Exclamation point. So this one came out two years after, 1969. Mm. And why is this movie not known? Do you know? Yeah, so United Artists are the people who funded it. And supposedly what happened is that it cost so much money and was so complicated that at one point they were going to fire the director, but Marlon Brando kind of stepped up and helped them out. And, and that when well, it was... By the way, Brando made this movie instead of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He made the right choice. I agree. And instead of kind of giving it a big push, United Artists kind of just like let it out. As little advertisement as was demanded of them. And I think it just floundered and went away. In a version substantially shorter than the Italian cut. 20 minutes shorter. And most of the kind of like really direct political commentary when they're talking about stuff like in the American cut at the beginning you see a man get strangled and in the Italian cut you hear voiceover of Brando talking to someone going yeah because due to their religious beliefs they're going to cut off his arms and legs and parade it in different directions so he can't get any rest the action of the film takes place over, you know, six or eight years or so in this Portuguese colony, which was supposed to be Spanish because this is based loosely on what Spain did with slavery and a revolt that happened. But the distributors in Italy and United Artists went, Franco's not going to be happy if we said it in Spain. So we want to be distributed in Spain. So how about we just make up and it's Portugal, even though this never happened in Portugal. So the lead character is Sir William Walker. Not the actual real William Walker. But somewhat in line with the actual, uh, you know. I mean, Alex Cox made a very surreal film called Walker starring Ed Harris I would highly recommend if you haven't seen it Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah he's kind of like someone who's going into a country wants to take control destabilize it in the beginning of the movie we're not quite sure why he's doing it but it becomes clear it's for the British Empire I mean if you folks have seen the new movie Pacifiction by Albert Serra there are some similarities between the Benoit character in that film and Brando here they're both these these characters who present themselves as kind of liberal colonizers Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're the middleman. They're the one who wants what's best for everyone. Where they're lighting the match of the fuse. In this case, the fuse is one of the slaves played by Ivaristo Marquez, who was a Colombian actor. Well, I say a, actor. A non-actor. He was non-actor. He had never seen a film before he was in this movie. Mm-hmm. The, the distributor wanted Sidney Poitier. Oh boy, that would feel like a completely different movie if Poitier was in the role. And by the way, if you've read like Pictures of a Revolution or anything like that, you know that like at this time, if there was ever like a black character in a movie. They're like, oh, we get Sidney Poitier. There yeah. was no other actor that yeah. were on any studio's mind. But Pontecervo wanted Marquez. 
Mark has because of, you know, the power of his presence. Sir William Walker, played by Marlon Brando, he's dispatched by the British to this island in the hope of stirring unrest, you know, among the slaves there. Trade isn't as profitable as it could be. So perhaps if a revolt happens and the people that are in power are removed, it would be a little bit easier for the British to sneak in and, you know, get some dough. So Sir William Walker meets the slave Jose, plants some ideas in his head, plants some ideas in that of the slaves around him, like, well, you know, what if we rob some gold? You know, mm-hmm. wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be great to stick it to your colonial oppressors? Eventually, you know, one thing leads to another. The uprising has happened. And you get the feeling that uh, Brando's character has done this many a times, mm-hmm. that he's gone somewhere, destabilized it, and then moved on. Now that Jose has been crowned king, or whatever he's been crowned, now you've got Brando coming in saying, well, look, you got to keep the money flowing. I mean, you got to keep the industry going. And, and this is all an elaborate ruse to basically create a colony, not even for the British, but for the British like sugar trading company. Yeah, well, what's kind of amazing about the movie is that it allows it to complicate in interesting ways that would happen in real life where, you know, Jose decides to step down because he feels he he doesn't vocalize it, but that, you know, he'll let somebody who understands it, who will run the island. Are they on an island? Yeah, the, the colony. Mm, the colony. There you go. And of course, what ends up happening is that person who runs it becomes corrupt themselves. Well, they're what who's put in place is the character Teddy, played by Renato Salvatore, who's this very ineffectual. He's, he's a mixed race character, which in the movie in the opening scenes that's established as he's somebody who like can go between worlds he can go between worlds but is also uncertain of his place in either world so he's someone who Brando and Brando's bosses are able to manipulate into basically turning this into a banana republic for the British investors and the trading company and then you know where a normal movie would end Brando finally says goodbye he's become good friends with Jose but then there is a long time jump I think it's a decade they say where Brando is contacted by the sugar company and they're like listen this business is not going as well as we want it to the because ineffectual puppet president has decided he actually wants to be president mm-hmm. so we have to get in there we need you to get back in there and there's another revolt going on as well create another coup that will get this guy out and will reestablish our authority and you know this new revolt is being led in part by jose again mm-hmm. who has begun to understand what's happened to the colony and in the second part brando seems to be at a low ebb when they go and get him almost as if he's like realizing what he's done but he just goes right back into it just does the same thing again mostly you get the sense because he has curiosity to see jose again to see where he's been but brando is treating it like kind of a game or a joke Mm -hmm. that like you know this is not hurting him so he can kind of play all these people see all this death and he just wants to see his pal jose again and they can you know talk about the good old days and where it ends up is where you think it will end up, but it's also one that kind of destroys Brando mentally and physically by the end of the movie. I mean, I think maybe one of the reasons why this one wasn't as groomed for success and the uh, way there's that, no victory at the end of the film. Yeah, yeah, like Battle of Algiers, I don't think could be made and released today. But, no, but even so, at the time, I mean, it was you know it was it was coming after this enormous victory, and it was mostly funded by the Algerian government, I believe. Whereas this movie very much reminds me of the Ned Beatty speech from Network. You know, there are no nations, there are no Russians, there are no Arabs. There's just the smooth flow of capital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in in its relationship to 
colonialism, it's like there are the have countries and there are the countries that they exploit. And that is the natural order of things. And uh, and if you want to think you're slaves or if you want to think that you're paid workers, you can think however you want. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, as long as the money keeps flowing to us, as long Mm -hmm. as we keep getting the sugar, that's what matters. So, you know, at the end of the day, don't we all win? We get the sugar, we get the money, and you get to say you're not slaves anymore. Mm. You know, that would be the perspective, the, the like liberal colonizer perspective. So you think that like people who saw the movie at the time didn't recommend it because they're like, oh boy, what a gut punch. Well, I don't think anybody saw it at the yeah. time, but I do think that the people who were, you know, in a position to give this movie a wide release. Yeah, I, I think they they probably got the smell of Marxism all over it. And, and they, they said, there's not a lot of money here. Yeah, you could watch Battle of Algiers and not go like, oh, well, this is. Uh, socialist or Marxist. It's just just a war. Like it doesn't really affect us in that way. This one, you cannot watch it in any other way other than capitalism is a just like soul crushing, destroying thing. So what happened to him after this? So it's not very clear. There's some interviews that he did afterwards. He made a movie in 1979, which is 10 years removed from Burn that I watch. It's called Operation Ogre and it's about the assassination of Spanish Admiral Carrero Blanco under who was under Franco in Spain at the time and it is interesting is that it has all that kind of like political idea behind it but at its base it is a genre film which is all about like we have to set up this bomb we have to get the team we have to do all this stuff but it does like really interesting things like there is a flash forward an hour in and you're like wait 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 we're flash forwarding and we're seeing like how one of these people end up and then it snaps back to the actual assassination, which you know did happen in real life. What's so going to happen? But he still builds suspense there while also questioning, you know, the characters are like, how do we do this? Do we have to be patient? Do we have to keep going forward? Just like Burn, just like Battle of Algiers, it's like these revolutionaries will die and it could take another 10 years before anything changes. And I don't know if the film was very successful. I, I feel like it doesn't have that much of a high reputation. It's easily available now only because all of this director's films have been remastered, but it's one that people usually consider a footnote. And after that, nothing. He didn't direct any other movies. I mean, in the 90s, he claimed in in an interview that he could only direct a movie if he loved it. Yes. And some of his friends, there's a documentary you can find online about him, say that he gets very bored with movies and goes, "Eh, why am I making this? It's not worth it. Well, I mean, he has also claimed that he has turned down, or he had turned down before his death, a lot of movies. And, you know, after the Battle of Algiers, that's probably true. I believe it. He did want to make a movie about the Palestinian Intifada, and that didn't happen probably for God. a lot of reasons. Could you imagine? That would be amazing. Yeah. He also wanted to make a movie about the assassination of El Salvador's Archbishop Oscar Romero starring Gene Hackman. I mean, I felt very sad watching Burn just that like, my God. A, a like that was it. <laughs> a huge scale, like, you know, massively budgeted, massively scoped epic with, you know, one of the biggest stars in the world that is this kind of like Marxist tract. Mm-hmm. Like, my God. I mean, but that's the thing, right? The people in power are like, wait, 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 fool us once. <laughs> You know, shame on you. And I feel like it's not just you need to be passionate about something. I think that at a certain point, especially when you're getting into the 80s, people are like, no, 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 you don't get to make that kind of movie anymore. 
And he'd probably just rather not make a movie. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And he ended up directing commercials, which is really depressing. But you got to pay the bill somehow at the end of the day. And like really generic commercials too. You see them some in the documentary and it's just like, oh, it's just like, you know, washing liquid. Completely anonymous. Wow. But you know what? All of his movies are more available than they ever have been now. Battle of Algiers, you can see it on the Criterion channel. Burn just came out from Imprint on Blu-ray and a two to set. If you go on YouTube, you can find a hybrid version that is most of the Italian cut. And you also have the English dialogue when Brando talks and the other characters talk as well. So I would, if you want to watch the movie, watch it in that version and then get the imprint Blu-ray because there's a great commentary on it, tons of interviews. So, you know, if you're interested in the film, pick it up. Justin, do we have any letters this week? As per usual, you can send letters to the Important Cinema Club podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Alex Greenblatt and he goes, Hey, Important Cinema Club. I was recently turned on to this podcast by my good friend with good taste in film and have adored the doors you've opened for me as a movie watcher. I'm glad to see other people are as fascinated by Edgar G. Ulmer's career as I am. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thank you to that friend spreading the good word. We expect all of you to get five friends to listen to this podcast. Yeah, the Important Cinema Club is a pyramid scheme, so get on it, people. I've always been wanting to find his Yiddish language film Greener Felder, but I've had no luck aside from some uncaptioned clips on YouTube. Have you ever seen that one? No, I've not seen any of Edgar G. Ulmer's Yiddish films. I've seen his all-black cast movie, Moon Over Harlem. Kino recently released a Blu-ray collection called The Jewish Soul, Classics of Yiddish Cinema, that includes a remastered version of Edgar G. Ulmer's American Matchmaker, among other films. So there's that one that's in high definition. I mean, Edgar G. Ulmer, one of the problems with his filmography is so much of it was made under such impoverished circumstances for various fly-by-night companies that I don't think he has any lost movies, or at least not in the sound era, at least, but a lot of them don't exist. Like a lot of the movies that he made for producers releasing corporation, like the original 35 millimeter negatives were lost in a vault fire or something like that. So like a movie like my son, the hero exists only in 16 millimeter dupe versions. So Greenfelder is available as English subtitles out in the world. I don't know through what organization it is there now, but I'm just looking online and it looks like a DVD was released at some point. Oh, but we should say, where is his big PRC movie? What was it called? Uh, Sister's Secret. They remastered it. They played it at like the one of the film festivals in L.A. Get in touch with Gold Ninja Video. Let's put yeah. it out. Is it like maybe the Elmer like estate doesn't want or there's like certain parameters they want to hit? I would imagine that it's probably... Kino puts out so much stuff though. Yeah. There's no reason that My Sister's Secret is not one of those films. What I would do for just even like a scan of like Club Havana, which is a great movie. It may also come down that the like people are like, ah, you know, it's public domain. Do we want to put it out there? Because once it out, it's out there, it's out of our hands. But then like this seems like stuff that Flickr Alley would pick up and put out in the world in a heartbeat how about you and me try to put it out uh what my sister's secret yeah let's get in touch with them whoever has it sure we can reach out and see if there's like a what we'll get turned down but it's fine the roadblock that may be up there that was i think isn't it like prc's like most expensive movie ever made they claimed they claimed it was their first million dollar production which Mm. it was not but it was more expensive than a lot of them so the letter continues i recently listened to your guys brazilian cinema episode from a while back and was wondering if you ever had heard of brazilian oh i'm gonna try to say this porno chanchadas or sex comedy films of the mid-70s no i have heard of them have not seen 
Given your guys' love of scrappier cinematic movements, I feel like you would appreciate the trashy charm of these. Unfortunately, there aren't that many you can find with English subtitles, but they can be super charming and funny. While a lot of Brazilian telenovela actors and directors cut their teeth doing these films, they definitely have a more naturalistic quality to them than your average soap opera. I would definitely recommend Vai Trabalhar Vagabundo, Get to Work Vagabond, and A Infidelide I Alcance, boy, Der Todos. Infidelity for all, for starters. Both very charming and a bit insane. Thanks again for a great podcast. Justin, could you repeat to me what the name of that movement was called? Porno Chanchadas. Okay, great. Now I found it on Wikipedia because I searched Brazilian porno and <laughs> what did you think was going to? I was up? kind of hoping it might autocomplete to you porno know porno comedy or whatever, whatever that called. word was, but no, it's just. Yeah, no. I would love to do some of those kind of like international comedians. Like I've had a, Contiflas. Yeah, exactly. Or there's like another Mexican one that I really wanted to watch. Or even like the British comedian Norman Wisdom. What if we did a whole month of these guys? Like we'll do that'll be our time to do Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. <laughs> it's like, whoa, our listeners are drawing up a month of people <laughs> that nobody except for the people from that country recognize. Oh I mean, it's not like we have we haven't gone in the past weeks and weeks without talking about anybody anybody recognized. <laughs> yeah, we need um, you know, to throw in Clint Eastwood part two <laughs> somewhere yeah. in there. But thank you for that. Especially the movies that helps a lot of like, okay, this is a good direction that we can go to. I mean, if they're wacky out there comedies, I love those. Not enough of them exist in the world. So thank you very much for that letter. As per usual, you can send us letters at important club podcast at gmail.com. Will, what are we doing on a Patreon this week? Well, we're interested in studying the great filmmaker Stanley Tong. Stanley Tong is a Hong Kong-based auteur. He is best known for directing Rumble in the Bronx and First Strike, among other Jackie Chan films. But we were interested in revisiting his sole foray into the North American market, 1997's Mr. Magoo. <laughs> and did we find a comedy classic in the vein of the Fairley Brothers' Three Stooges? Well, you're going to have to listen to the episode to find out. Yet another Leslie Nielsen movie. Mm-hmm. So that is at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And you can get that episode, our entire back catalog as well. So next week, we are going, you know, the only logical thing to follow up the director of Battle of Algiers. We are discussing the work of writer-director Steven Sayadian. I feel like I'm saying that name wrong. But who is that, Will? Also known as Rince Dream. Listen, he also directed porn. Wait, what? Yes, this is yeah, this is yet he a, mostly directed pornography. This is yet another guy who made porn. If you've heard of porn, you've possibly heard of Cafe Flesh. Mm-hmm. He also did Night Dreams, and his other big one is Doctor Caligari. Oh, I love it. The German expressionist no, classic. No, what? not the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. The classic 1989 avant-garde erotic film, Dr. Caligari, which was just released on a beautiful new Blu-ray by Mondo Macabre. These movies, for a long time, people said that they weren't able to be released, like the elements weren't there. But That's what I hear about Cafe Flesh. I don't I know. I heard that there's some rumblings that Cafe Flesh could be coming at some point. Hope so. But Dr. Caligari's finally out. We get those Blu-rays. It's a perfect reason to talk about this filmmaker who I saw his films like 15 years ago, probably. Because like, yeah. that's the film that when you watch in a, walk into somewhere like Suspect Video, you're like, what is that? Well, like, 
Cafe Flash is one of the few porno movies that had a crossover success as a midnight movie mm-hmm. back in the early 1980s. After 1980, it was one of the few that played in regular movie theaters. It's also the only porno movie to co-star Richard Belzer. <laughs> wow. Who does not have sex. <laughs> uh, Damn but, it. But if I can try to sell you guys on this filmmaker, like Cafe Flash is a genuinely bizarre movie. It's like, it's not, it's not the kind of movie you jack off to. Here's the thing. All of his films, the best way to describe it is they all take place in studio. So what that means is that like, you're almost in impossible spaces. Everything is very abstract, colorful and out there. Will this give us a reason to also watch the Ben Stiller classic Permanent Midnight? Because you know that this director worked a lot with Jerry Stahl, the subject of Permanent Midnight. Oh my goodness. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. Until then, my name is Jonathan Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank some of our new patrons who include Robert Riot, Matthew Fioti, Kathleen Quinn, Andrew Knox, Dylan Lamb, Nico DeGregorio, Chris Bamman, Bren Aduzzi, and Joe Bozel. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing it without you. Finally, the best movie is at the top of the box office. All the, you know, reporters are saying the movies are back. Well, actually... Not only are the movies back, we can talk about two things. Because there was also an article where the studios are like, yeah, we're going to send back our stuff to movie theaters because it makes more money that I read, way. I read that article in Variety, I think it was. It was studios are reconsidering this model that they've tried to build over the pandemic era of wanting to basically forego movie theaters, have smaller release windows, if releases at all and have maybe simultaneous premieres on streaming platforms and what they found out is you know if you trade money for goods and services <laughs> yes etc cetera, etc cetera. well the you know the big kind of thing they're trying to pull over our eyes is it was a huge success on the streaming service right stock market Right? right, right. We keep adding new subscribers every month. 500 bajillion minutes watched, mm. whatever the hell that means. It doesn't mean anything. While a movie being number one at the box office, that has some concrete look. It's number one. And so that is a value proposition. But things have started to seem a little bit back to normal in movie theaters lately because there have been there have been hits again. Mm-hmm. You know, Scream yeah, it was 6 a hit. was a hit. What else has been a hit? John Wick part four has been a hit. Certain All the great original movies. Air with Matt Was that a Damon. hit? Well, I don't know. It, did you see it? Was, it? Yeah. Because you did it for a podcast, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I didn't like it that much, no. No, it was exactly what it looked like. I didn't see it. Because there's nothing there for me. But reigning atop them all. Oh, and what's also notable is these movies are not superhero movies. No. Because the last couple Marvel movies have underperformed. I'm going to say, we are in the death of Marvel. I think I've said this before. You think so. But I saw the trailer for the Marvels, which is their next movie, and I'm like, this is nothing. Like, as a fan, I'm like, there's, you know, it's too woke for me. (laughs) No, what I would like to do is these movies wake up because they're boring and nothing is happening in them. I know they're very dingy looking. And also like you can't follow these movies if you haven't seen 10. To understand the Marvels, you need to have watched WandaVision, Miss Marvel and Captain Marvel as well. I mean, the last one I watched, I watched Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness on a plane and I was just lost. Yeah, you're uh, like, I don't know who any of these characters any are. Of this. Like these movies have completely lost their ability to stand on their own. Yes. What's funny is that Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness has almost, well, I guess the Wanda link because that's a WandaVision thing, but it's too much 
commitment to have to enjoy these films. And I think what's going to happen is this is all going to go away. The TV shows will kind of stop in maybe one or two years because they're already too far in motion. And then they're going to go, hey, look who's back. It's Iron Man. You guys like Iron Man, right? That's That's right. 100% what's going to happen. Yeah, totally. Get back to the characters. Also, I think all these streaming shows, and this applies to Star Wars as well. Mm -hmm. Well, they said like no more streaming shows for Star Wars, I think. Well, it's watered down the brand. I know people like Andor, but like new Star Wars things don't feel momentous anymore. No, they don't. Mandalorian season three started a show that I loved in its first season because it was so novel felt different and then season two was very convoluted with like long arcs and then this season I watched 10 minutes and I went you know what I'm not going to watch this. And I turned it off. I'm proud of you. So anyway, according to a friend of mine who will not be named, who watched all of it, because he always does, he's like, the season ends with them returning to the status quo of the first season. Uh, And I'm like, so so the first season we liked, and then they spent three more seasons going, we're going to get back there soon, guys. Don't worry. What are you doing? Reigning atop the box office, the biggest hit of the spring. Maybe it'll be the biggest hit of the year. It's mm. enormous. And probably the movie that will become the new template for blockbusters, Super Mario Brothers. Yes, the Super Mario Brothers movie, which, you know what? I was kind of excited I about. I love Mario. I love Mario. I love that little guy jumping. Even though the argument is be like, what do you love about him? I like, I how- like playing the game. I like I like how he jumps. Yeah. I like how, how you get to jump. Yep. Uh, I like Captain Lou Albano. Yeah, you know, I like I like Mario as a guy. He seems like a, a decent mm. fellow, you know? I mean, I like Luigi, little fraidy cat. Love him. Yeah. Oh, Will's shaking his head. No. I'm more of a Mario guy. Oh, no. All right. That That's the difference between us. You're the Mario. I'm definitely a Luigi guy. Thank you. To which this movie, but Mario is really the shadow. He's like the front facing. Luigi's the real, you know, the puppet master oh, and all this. He's the Henry Kissinger. He's the Dick Cheney yeah, of the operation. Right. Yeah. He's the one that, uh, you know, edits the podcast. So... <laughs> <laughs> Lou, the Super Mario Brothers movie, I was actually excited. Illumination, they've done the Despicable Me movies. Lots of fans. Haven't actually watched any of them past the first one. I haven't uh, seen any, any of, them. of them. And it was directed by the people who did Teen Titans Go, the movie, which I like. And I was like, oh, maybe there'll be some anarchic energy to this. No! Here's what I think about the Super Mario Brothers movie. I feel like it could have done one of two things well. It could have embraced the sort of spirit of nonsense of the game. Yes, like an anarchic sense. Yeah, yeah. Or it could have done like the Lego movie, where it could have been like, what if it was an actually clever movie based on the game? What if, okay, a plumber is saving a princess? What does that mean? What does that relationship mean? Why would a plumber save a princess? And really kind of explore that. That's the thing when people are like, but don't you have the things that you like up on screen in the Super Mario Brothers movie and I don't want to take it away from those people if they just had a like a swell if they time. loved it that's great it, you know what it looks great all the stuff that are in the Mario games mostly the new ones are on screen so if that's what you want it's up there there's nothing else well it just felt yeah stuck between these two poles where it's like there's just enough more character and more lore to make you realize how little there actually <laughs> there is. is lore yes. yeah yeah too much time spent with Donkey Kong <laughs> I would, I, well, that's another thing. The relationship between Mario and Donkey Kong could have been better developed, I think. Mm-hmm. More fun could have been had with it. But I also think that that movie is kind of the perfect in amber. This is what the ultimate box office king movie is that technically takes no chances, mm-hmm. that gives you what you want up on screen. Oh, does it ever. <laughs> and will make a billion dollars. So now every studio is like struggling to make a movie like and this. And also it has actually very little to do with what's on screen. What it what it is coasting on is replicating you remember this, right? things that things that you feel fondly towards. Yes. You see those colors, you see those little those little boxes with the question marks, the little toads and your mm-hmm. uh, Yoshi's not in it, is he? Well, I hope 
hope you Coming stayed soon. for the post credit sequence. Oh, I did. Where an egg is cracking. Oh my goodness! And Wario. Well, they're Yoshi's. They're, at one point, they walk right. and they look at a bunch of Yoshi. Wario's not in this. He'll he'll be he'll be in soon, I think. God, I mean, there's gonna be a million of these as long as it keeps making money. I, I was frustrated by it because it's like, oh no, they hit that perfect kind of like balance of it's a nothing movie, but that presents the things that you want on screen. And this will be the next ten years of, yes. of popular cinema. Every video game will be turned into a movie now. Well, we've moved away from the period of, hey, we're ashamed of video games, so we're going to try to do our own thing. We're going to try to make Mario, but Blade Runner, okay. like like the Bob Hoskins film. I think one of the most baffling things are people are like, yeah, but the but the Bob Hoskins Blade Runner movie, that movie's great. And I'm like, slow your roll, folks. Yeah, I mean, the Bob Hoskins Super Mario, well, I like it more than you do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't call it a good movie. No, I think it has more interesting things in this movie. <laughs> Well, but, it takes more chances. Yes. But, you know, the argument would be, but I play the Mario games, give me the stuff that's in the Mario game. It's like, it's all here in the Illumination. And it's Super dead. Mario. It's dead. Chris, I like how people are like, Chris Pratt wasn't that bad. It was like a black hole. It was like a talking Chris, cat. Chris Pratt wasn't that good either. Yeah. I mean. It was like, every time he opened his mouth, it's like, just static came out. I don't feel like Mario. Did Mar that just happen? I don't feel like Mario was much of a character. No, he wasn't. I mean, and nobody was. The but... movie's called the Super Mario Brothers movie. How dare you break them up? How dare you? Yeah. Anyway, if you're six years old, I'm sure it's really fun. Yeah, it'll probably be your favorite movie of all time. And, you know, memes 10 years from now. You're like, remember how good the Super Mario Brothers movie was? And yeah, w me and Will will <laughs> march onward as it is demanded by law to see the second part when and it comes I'll, out. And on the way, I'll check out my doctor for my aching back because <laughs> I'm getting so old. It's time for another tube up the butt. And you're like, yeah, I'm at that age. <laughs> Stick it in.